Welcome to Christ Fellowship at Little Miami. Uh, we are continuing on in our series, The Greatest Commission. Uh, and if you're just joining us today, you might have recognized in the midst of the music service this morning, a theme. And that will be the theme we're going to be contending with today. Uh, week one of this series, we started, and if you've got your, um, your scripture memorized, I hope that you do. If you have not yet started memorizing, go ahead and flip forward to the, the actual scripture. This is the last week you'll see the whole thing up. Next week, you're going to have little cue words, and then you guys are going to do the whole thing by memory. Not the person next to you. You as an individual. Week one, we began with Jesus' absolute authority, and we talked about how Jesus establishes this at the outset. Before he tells us to do anything, he says, I have complete authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, and then he says, go and make disciples, which is what we talked about last week. Making disciples is the number one thing that we are supposed to be doing. You'll remember I said that there's one verb in this in the Great Commission, and that is make disciples, and that the, all the other verbs augment it. You remember discussing this? Okay. Um, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Let's read it together. You can look at the screen if you need to. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority in heaven has been given. Oh, I did it wrong. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, yep. <laughs> this is what happens when you memorize in the wrong version. All right. <laughs> Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think I memorized that in the NIV. That's going to cause me problems. Okay. Um, we're, today we're going to discuss baptism as a topic. And some of you might immediately feel your stomach clenching up just a little bit, even having this discussion, because this is awkward for you. This is a discussion that gets awkward whenever we discuss it in church circles for a number of reasons. Number one, most of us have personal experience in this matter. You've experienced probably some baptism or another, right? Some version of baptism. And so whether or not you recognize it, there's some part of you that wants to defend what has happened to you via baptism. And so that is, that's what you're going to guard. That's how you're going to frame up how you think about this issue. Many of us also have family members who have very serious commitments on this issue. Um, so... Perhaps you've got family members who have been baptized in certain ways and taught that that was the way it was supposed to transpire. Uh, there typically is a strong worry on this issue when it comes to people who have died who believed a certain thing about baptism. And so whether or not you recognize it, there might be a reticence to let go of a particular teaching about baptism because certain family members, you're afraid they might be in a bad condition with regard to God because maybe they didn't have a position that, that maybe is more biblical. Historically, church theology has not been formed necessarily on obedience to scriptures, and so that makes this a little bit awkward. Sometimes we approach this topic, and we do so looking through the lenses of dogma, of church teachings that have existed. And so what we do is we let the dogma tell us what the scriptures say instead of letting the scriptures determine what we believe. Does that make sense? We as a church, uh, in, in particular, this congregation of believers is committed to letting the scriptures explain and teach exactly what we believe, think, and do. And that's very important when it comes to this particular issue. There's also this sense in which I'm going to feel silly if I have to change my mind on the issue of baptism. 
Nobody likes to change their mind. Nobody, to, to acknowledge that you need to change is to acknowledge that maybe you've been wrong in the past. And as has been rightly said, no one enjoys change except infants with soiled diapers. <laughs> and even they cry the whole time. Uh, let me say at the outset, if you think I'm targeting you in particular in discussion of baptism, I'm not. I don't know the congregation well enough to know everybody's opinion on baptism. So I'm, I'm just bringing you what the scriptures say. I'm, my goal right now is to just bring as concise and decisive a view of what the scriptures teach on baptism as I can. And you hear me say concise now, you'll be laughing 50 minutes from now. <laughs> I, I have worked to trim this and trim this and trim this. This should be about three or four, at least three or four hour long sessions. So, so Melissa was under a time restriction, but I have it from Gary Barrett that I should have no reason to curtail what I'm about to say today. So if, if, if it goes long, that's the guy you want to blame. Um, this, this, unfortunately, is going to be a little bit like taking a drink from a fire hose. So what's going to happen here is in the first point of this sermon, we're going we're to spend the bulk of our time under the first point of the sermon. So if it gets 40 minutes in and you're looking at your watch going, oh no, he's still on the first point. Don't freak out. The last two points are rather quick, okay? Let's do this before we begin. I want to pray, and I just want to ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds concerning this issue, okay? Can we, can we do that? We're going to pray together, which means I'm going to pray, and I want you to be thinking the same thoughts to God as I'm saying them, all right? Let's pray. Father, right now we come as believers who we acknowledge are imperfect in so many ways. And uh, so, Lord, right now we're asking for your clarity in this matter. We want the Holy Spirit to speak directly to us. And God, I say right now, and I, and I pray that my brothers and sisters in the room right now say the same thing. If you have taught differently than we have believed in this regard, God, I pray that you would open us up to changing our hearts and minds and maybe even our actions on this issue. God, I want to ask your blessing on this as we go forward. Help us to hear with charity. Help us to be convicted. Um, not necessarily because of good arguments, but because your Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And I pray that we would be open to listening to your Spirit today. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start the sermon. We're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about what baptism is. What baptism is. And, and I want to begin by explaining the physical dynamics of baptism. Now, this is important for this reason. There are very few words in the Bible that never got translated. Baptism is one of them. It never made its way into other languages. Baptism is the same word that they were using in the first century, baptizo. Now, why didn't they translate that into com the common language when you know, the, the Bible was being translated to English? Why didn't that come into English? Why didn't it get translated? Well, the reason was, is by the time that the, the word was being brought to people in their own languages, there was already so much dissension on the issue of baptism that they just left the word what it was, lest they confuse people. That being said, what does baptizo mean? It means immersion, totally submerging something. All right, to take something and to dunk it under. It is a complete saturation. So you might describe, for instance, if you had a dish that was dirty and you needed to wash the dish, you would, in the Greek, you would baptize the dish, which means you put it underwater, you scrubbed it, and then you drew it back out. That was the idea. So one could conceivably be baptized in a way other than dunking under, other than immersion, if, say, for instance, you were standing underneath a waterfall. That would be a baptism as well. It is a complete saturation. It is completely covering the person, all right? But it is, it is thorough. Everybody understand? 
All right, now there are prepositions used with this term baptism that help us to understand what we're doing as well. So you'll notice in the scriptures, when you see baptism, you'll see the word in or with sometimes. Baptism in or baptism with. Now that describes the element into which a person is being baptized, right? So I'm baptizing a person in water. Does that make sense? Then there's this preposition into, which describes not what you're being baptized in, but what the final result of the baptism is. All right, so into is, is you, you can be baptized in water, but for instance, John the Baptist, he baptized in water, but he baptized into repentance, right? He didn't dip people under repentance. He dipped people under water as an act of repentance. Does everyone understand how that works? So let me just give you a quick illustration of why this is important. John will tell us, you know, that I'm baptized with water, but there's one coming after me, and he will baptize you in the Spirit and in fire, or in fire. Does Jesus baptize us in living flame? Now, here's what's being said in, in this. When, when you are baptized, this is what John the Baptist is saying, there's going to be a time in history where people will receive the Holy Spirit as a baptism. They will be saturated in the Spirit of God. And there will be other people who reject that, and they will be baptized in fire. All right? And so it is a baptism in one or the other, either in the Spirit or in fire. Now, again, this gives us a little bit of clarity. I also want to bring a little more clarity here with regard to this issue. Have you heard the phrase born again? All right. Up until the 17th century, the phrase born again was only applied to one thing. Baptism. That was it. When you said born again, everyone understood what you meant was baptism. It wasn't until the 17th century pietists actually began to separate out the term that they started actually applying it to other things. So when you hear the phrase born again, for the bulk of church history, what was meant by that was the immersion and the raising up of a person in baptism. Okay, let's discuss the baptism of John. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, 1 through 5. Mark chapter 1, 1 through 5. I'm sorry, I already sent you to Matthew. Well, hold, hold Matthew because we're going to be there shortly anyway. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 3 today. Mark chapter 1, 1 through 5. Now, baptism actually was taking place to some degree or another before John the Baptist. He's not the first person to ever have baptism as an institution. Uh, within Judaism, it was known that some people, when they would convert to Judaism, that is, become a proselyte, that's the name for it, when they became a proselyte, sometimes those people would be baptized, but it wasn't the same as what John the Baptist was doing. Um, they would literally go into water and take a bath. It was like they, just, they would dunk themselves underwater. It was kind of a self-baptism. But it's not till John the Baptist that we see somebody actually engaging as, in this as a particular ritual for the cleansing of sin and for repentance. Mark 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the country of Judea was going out to him, and the people of Jerusalem, uh, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, who was John the Baptist? He was a prophet who preceded Jesus. He came before Jesus, and his primary goal was to get people ready 
for what Jesus would be and do. This is how he self-describes along these lines. I I think we dramatically underestimate the impact of John the Baptist. He's one of those characters that we gloss over because of who came next, right? He was very much in the shadow of the next guy. But I want you to consider what this guy did and what transpired with him. Look at verse 4 and 5 of that text. Did you see this? All the country of Judea was going out to him. All the people of Jerusalem. It is estimated that John the Baptist baptized tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. Consider that. I don't think they literally mean everybody. This is is rabbinic hyperbole. I don't think they mean everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in Judea. But what's being said here is significant. The masses went out to John the Baptist to be baptized. And as this happened, uh, John the Baptist was engaging in three basic things. So people gathered in, and here's what John the Baptist took them to. Number one, confession. Confession. Now, what is confession? Confession is to acknowledge the wrong you're doing. The opposite of confession would be to cover up and to remain silent about what you've done wrong. Okay, so confession. And then repentance. Does anybody know what repentance means? We always say turn from, the literal definition is change your mind. Change your mind. Now it has entailed in it this idea of turning around and going in the opposite direction, but changing your mind. So you confess, here's what I've done, Lord. And then you repent. I'm changing my mind about what I've done. I'm not going to think about it in the same way anymore. And then he engaged in a baptism. People would literally walk down into the water, and here's how the dynamics work. You would take that person, you would dunk them underwater, and you bring them back up. You don't have to hold them down until the bubbles stop to make sure the sin's gone. It's down and up. Um, I have seen a few interesting <laughs> baptisms in my, my day. Uh, there was one instance. I, this just came to me. I'm sorry. Quick story. I had a girl who was baptizing uh, another girl at a CIY event, and we were in a fountain in the middle of campus because they didn't have a baptistry. So we climbed into the fountain, and she went to dunk this girl down underwater, and <laughs> her head just stopped at the top of the water. There was a concrete barrier just, just under the surface. And so she went bonk, slid her forward, looped underwater, and brought her back up. Uh, you know what? It was memorable, and God has a sense of humor, and so did everybody who was there. Okay, so a dunking down and bringing back up. Now, what, what John was doing is he was showing there is a cleansing that is taking place. And you are different because of what is happening now. You have reached a turning point. Now, John was sort of the last call in the Old Testament. He was it. He was saying, look, listen, get ready. God's about to do something new. And so you have to begin changing everything about yourself. Get ready. Make straight the path. God is about to appear in a profound way. And he was not silent about that. He let people know, look, I'm not Messiah, but one is coming. One is coming. And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he identifies Christ in person. Turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 4 through 7. Now, Jesus is being challenged as he often was. Um, he was always confronted by leaders, teachers, scribes, authorities. And so he's being challenged in this text. And they're challenging him on his authority. Verse 4. Jesus turns to them and he does what Jesus does best. He asks a question that completely undermines the person who's challenging him. Verse 4. Jesus says to them, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? 
They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are all convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, John the Baptist's impact after death was still so significant that the leaders and teachers were afraid to be stoned to death if they spoke a word against him. That's how much the baptism meant to many of the people who had been baptized by John the Baptist. I want you to notice something else. If you have ever had this opinion yourself or ever heard this opinion, baptism really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. Look at this text again. Answer the question that the Pharisees would not answer. Was this baptism from God or from men? What were the two choices? Either this is an act of humanity, this is just a normal human endeavor, or this is something that is divinely appointed. God intended for this to happen. So which is it, guys? From God. You can say it. It was from God. It was from God. If John the Baptist's baptism was from God, it was divine, why would we think Jesus' baptism is not? Did John baptize everybody who showed up? Probably not. It seems unlikely. Now, I will say this. We're not told that he refused baptism, but we are told how he responds to some people who come out to be baptized. Matthew chapter 3, you can flip back to that now. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. And I love the image of John the Baptist. He was a Nazarene, which means he'd taken a vow to not cut his hair, to not have anything that was made with grapes, and to not touch or deal with anything that was dead. And so John the Baptist would have looked like Captain Caveman. I mean, just like hair everywhere. So visualize this guy down in the water. He's baptizing people. Uh, you know, he is, he's dirty. He lives in the wilderness at all times. probably actually kind of clean because he's been baptizing, right? Um, but just visualize this. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees coming for baptism, pause. Why were the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to see him? To be baptized. Some of these same guys who would turn on Jesus, they were okay about acknowledging their desire for change and everything, but when they came out, here's how he responds. You brood of vipers, you snake babies. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, it may be that some of the Sadducees and Pharisees went, okay, I still want to be baptized. But just guessing from how they responded to Jesus when he challenged them, I'm guessing a lot of these guys went, I'm not letting you redeem me. You're not going to make me clean. And they turned and went away. Why? Because pride was still getting in the way, and as it does with many people today, there's still a sense in which, you want me to do what? You're describing me how? I'm not interested in what you have to offer. Let's move beyond the baptism of John to the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' baptism is different than the baptism of John. Now, John the Baptist actually offers us a distinction between the baptism of Jesus and himself. We've already pointed out um, that he, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, uh, he describes it this way, 11. 
As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather, or, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up with chaff, or the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, if you're not used to the, the farming term or the, the first century idea behind winnowing, here's what winnowing is. So you would gather grain together, you get a pile of grain together, and it's full of all this dust and, and chaff and, and hairs and all sorts of other stuff. And you would take, you wait till like there's a decent breeze, and you would take a fork, a winnowing fork, and you'd stick it in there and you'd throw it up into the air, and the grain would drop back down, but all the garbage would blow out of the grain. So it was a way of refining the grain. Now, here's what John says about Jesus. He's going to show up and he's going to do the separation. It will be determined in him based on who has the Holy Spirit and who is consumed with fire. Look at Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7. And can I tell you again how much it delights me to hear pages flipping when I give you a Bible reference? Oh, Acts 19, 1 through 7. The baptism of Jesus nullified and usurped the baptism of John. The baptism of Jesus shows up on the scene and the baptism of John no longer has any value. It has been replaced by the baptism of Jesus. Acts 19, 1-7. It happened while uh, Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No! We've not even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. When they heard this, ready to underline? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. So here's what happens. Again, Paul did not show up and go, oh, you were baptized with John. That's good. You got wet. That's good enough. He went, no, no, there's another baptism that has come along, and this is the important one, being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so these guys, reckless as they were, went, okay, let's do it. And they just got baptized. Jesus leads by example. It's not just that he's going to tell people to be baptized, but if we look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, here's what we see, that Jesus was baptized himself. Now, here's a problem, guys. Why was John baptizing people? Forgiveness of what? Sins. And into repentance. Right? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus ever sin? Did Jesus have any need of repenting? So the question is, did Jesus receive the baptism of John? Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized him, uh, by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John's looking at Jesus and going, if anybody here needs to repent, I'm the one who needs to repent. I need to be baptized by you. You are greater than I. But Jesus answered him, saying, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us, underlined us, to fulfill all righteousness. What does righteousness mean, guys? 
right standing before God, being right before God. In order for us to be right before God, it is necessary, it is fitting that we do this. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending, that is he, John, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now note the us. Who is the us here? Is it just John and Jesus? I believe this is a message for all of us for all time. It is fitting for us to do this. This is what makes us righteous with God. This is an everlasting covenant, something meaningful, something powerful. Derek Prince pointed out the importance of water baptism laid out in this passage. Here's what he says. In this scene, all three persons of the Godhead clearly endorse it, that is water baptism. Jesus went through it. The Holy Spirit descended upon him and had not descended upon him until he was baptized in water. And then God the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus neither confessed nor repented, but let me show you what actually happens in this passage. Note it. Jesus is baptized in order to be righteous before God. It is a baptism which he commands, It is a baptism which grants the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? It is a baptism that receives approval from God. It is a baptism that establishes familial status with God. We are now part of the family. This is my son. It's not by accident that we see all these things in the text. This is an image of what happens, not just when Jesus is baptized, but when you and I experience the baptism that Christ calls us to. Mark chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus receives a second baptism. There's a second baptism that Jesus goes through. Not the one baptized by water with John. He calls it a baptism. Now remember, this can get a little confusing because the word baptism just means to be immersed in, right? And so that's the word you would use if, say, you were hit by a deluge or, you know, you were Miss Melissa on Friday, out there, a baptism of sorts. But listen to what Jesus says here, verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you were asking. This is James and John had come to them going, hey, grant that I, we can be on your right and left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're asking me. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That is the cup of God's wrath that he's speaking about. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, he's referencing something that is going to be happening. And you and I know what that something was, right? Crucifixion, where he would be saturated, completely covered in blood, completely covered in the wrath of God and estranged from God. So he has this this baptism into death of sorts. And Romans 6, verse 3 through 7, talks about this. Paul says this to the church at Rome. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So which, which did you receive? The Holy Spirit, familial status with God, or death? All of them. 
All of this has been imputed to you. Christ's death is imputed to you, as well as his righteousness, as well as the Holy Spirit, as well as family status. All of that comes into play, and it all seems to be tied into baptism. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The baptism goes beyond just being dead, it also speaks to what is yet to come, which is why a Christian, even in a context such as our culture right now, should not be operating with fear. So baptism is tied to the Holy Spirit. It is tied to the approval of the Father. It is tied to family status. It unites us with Christ in his death so that sins suffer a permanent defeat in our flesh and so that we can have the promise of resurrection. Let's talk about the requirements for Christian baptism. Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. Requirements for Christian baptism. First requirement of Christian baptism is knowledge of sin and repentance. Knowledge of sin and repentance. You can't repent if you don't know what sin is. So if you ever send your children to me to find out whether or not they're ready to be baptized, one of the things I'm going to talk to them about is what their personal sins are. I'm actually going to see whether they have a conscious understanding of what sin is. Because until a person understands what sin is, they're not ready to repent. And until they're ready to repent, they're not ready to be baptized. Knowledge of sin and repentance. Secondly, a desire to become a disciple or learner. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Hey, that verse sounds familiar. If you desire to become a disciple, baptism is how that is taking place. It's one of the, remember, it's a verb participle. It explains how baptism is to be taking place. The third thing is you must be able to make a choice appealing to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, 20 and 21. Now, Peter is here describing Noah's experience as a sort of baptism. Noah passed through the waters and came out on the other side. So we're going to pick up in verse 20. It's kind of right in the middle of the thought, but necessary here. Who were once obedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, there is an appealing to God being made here through baptism. It's not just that we're giving people baths. That's not, that's not what's happening. The person who is being baptized is in essence going, I need you, Lord. I need what you offer. I'm appealing to you for your salvation. And that's the purpose and function of this. Now, with that said, uncomfortable question. Should an infant be baptized? Look back over that list. Can an infant feel, fulfill any of those conditions? If you find yourself immediately rebelling against this, let me just ask in parallel fashion. Would you advocate that this church, would you recommend to the elders of this church that we baptize unrepentant unbelievers as a practice? Would you say to the elders, baptize unrepentant unbelievers? If we believe that was the case, by the way, we would be going and heisting people all the time and just you know, dunking them. If we believe we could impute righteousness through force, just physically through force. There's this guy right here on the right. See this dude? That's Raccoon John Smith. Raccoon John Smith was a frontier preacher. 
He, back in the era where settlers were moving out and expanding westward, Raccoon John Smith was one of these guys who would pack up from his church and then he'd go out for weeks on a time, the original Sermon on the Mount. He'd ride out into these country areas and then he would go preach to these churches, right? And so one day he's, he's going and he's preaching to a church and uh, he, he'd, he'd gone through this very effective ministry, like a revival service. And in the context of this, a lot of people decide that they want to come to faith, and so they want to believe. And so they decide they're going to be baptized. They go down to the river, and they're all being baptized. And Raccoon John Smith looks up into the crowd, and he sees that in the crowd, uh, there is one of the pastors who is local to the area who does infant baptism. So Raccoon John Smith goes, hey, there's such and such, and he names the guy. He's come out to be baptized today. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. And Raccoon John Smith is having none of it. He surges out of the water. He grabs the guy and he starts dragging him down into the water. And the guy's like, this doesn't count. I don't consent to this. Let go of me. And, and as he's taking him down the water, the guy goes, because many of this guy's congregation members are right there. He's like, it doesn't count if I don't mean it and I don't intend it. And Raccoon John Smith lets him go and goes, then why do you do it to infants? So wait, you're asking, then why on earth would so many denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church, baptize infants? That's a great question. Those who argue for infant baptism in the Catholic Church feel no need to justify what they do based on the Scriptures. They do it based on tradition. The Catholic Church holds tradition, and church practice is higher than the Scriptures. Okay, So they don't need to defend it. But there are many Protestants that do recognize the authority of Scriptures. And so how do they justify infant baptism? If you're searching for infant baptism in the scriptures, you will not find a single example in the scriptures. Not one. Now, there are a few references to households being baptized. For instance, the household of Cornelius, the household of the Philippian jailer, uh, the household of Lydia. So there are households that get baptized. And one of the arguments that Protestants who do infant baptism make is they say, well, look, uh, surely there must have been infants in this household, right? Do you know any households where there aren't infants? Yeah, okay, so that, that is not a compelling argument. Um, to be clear on this matter, we have no instance of infant baptism recorded until the third century. More than 200 years after the time of Christ, not a single instance of infant baptism is actually recorded. Now, Justin Martyr spoke to this issue in 155 AD. He's one of the early church fathers. Here's what he said. And for water baptism, we have learned from the apostles this reason. Since at our birth, we were born without our own knowledge or choice by our parents coming together. And we were brought up in bad habits and wicked training in order that we might not remain the children of necessity and of ignorance, but may become the children of choice and knowledge and may obtain in water baptism the remission of sins formerly committed. In other words, who needs to be baptized? People who have experienced sin and are ready for repentance. Tertullian says it even more strongly in 210 AD. According to the circumstances and disposition and even age of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable. Principally, however, in the case of little children, the Lord does say, indeed, do not forbid them to come to me. Let them come. Let them come then while they're growing up. Let them come while they are learning. While they are learning where to come to. Let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? Let them know how to ask for salvation that you may seem to have given to him who asks. 
The second argument for infant baptism comes from a comparison between circumcision and baptism. And, and so what is set up is based on Colossians chapter 2, 11-14. In that passage, Paul makes this comparison between um, circumcision and baptism. And what they say is, well, look, you circumcise an infant eight days, your, your, eight days old, so you should go ahead and baptize infants as well. Um, I would just point out in this text, if you, if you do look at Colossians chapter 2, 11-14, Paul makes the comparison, but he's making the comparison between two covenants. We've got two covenants. On the one hand, the one covenant is made just with little boys, and it's cutting off a little bit of flesh to show that they're part of God's people. On the other hand, we baptize, and it is a removal of all the power of the flesh. And this is the comparison being made. You know what the only perfect analogy is, guys? Comparing something to itself. That is the only way to make a perfect analogy. Other than that, we have to be careful not to overextend the analogy. And I think what has happened with particularly the issue of circumcision is you have people who overextend the analogy, particularly because we're told that we are saved by baptism through our, from our, our transgressions. Even if you believe in original sin, those are not our transgressions. Those would be the transgressions of Adam. So why would we be baptizing infants? All right, baptism and salvation. And don't worry, I promise, we're ending point one here in just a moment. <laughs> See the panicked eyes. We're not going to be able to get uh, to shooters in time. All right. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 37 through 39. A sermon gets interrupted. This, is, this must be a wonderful experience. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And as he's preaching, people will not even wait for him to get done preaching. They just start interrupting him. Because the message he's bringing is so powerful and it's striking them to the heart. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts with, and I'm going to be reading from the Amplified, by the way, so this is why you're hearing some extra words here. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart with remorse and anxiety. And they said to Peter and the rest of his apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, Repent, change your old ways of thinking, turn from your sinful ways, accept and follow Jesus as Messiah and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ because of or into the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, including the Gentiles, as many as the Lord is calling to himself. So note the formula. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Does it always happen that, in that order? Have you read your Bibles? Does it always happen in that order? No. No. It, but it, it all happens, just not necessarily in that order. The promise is for you, for your children, and all who far, are far off. Now remember, Peter's speaking to Jewish people. And he's like, look, this is for you. This is for all of you, the Jews. This is for you guys. And, and for those who will come after you. And for those who are far off, which is pointing not just to successive generations, but also to people like us. Repent. And be baptized. Here's a challenge I'll extend to you. If, if you take any other position than the one I've set out right now, I'm asking you, read the book of Acts. Read the entire book of Acts and ask three questions. One of my mentors in the faith showed me this. Ask three questions. Who gets baptized? How do they get baptized? When do they get baptized? Who gets baptized? How do they get baptized? When do they get baptized? I'll tell you from what I've found, you feel free to challenge me on it if you read something different. Who gets baptized? Somebody desiring to become a disciple. When do they get baptized? As soon as that person decides they want to become a disciple. Not after class, 
Not after months. When they decide they want to be a disciple, that's when they get baptized. How do they get baptized? In water immersion. Generally with repentance and faith and usually entailing some manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So here's the burning question. Can I be saved without being baptized? Can I be saved without being baptized? In one sermon, uh, Charles Spurgeon was speaking with someone, and uh, this is an interesting interchange. Spurgeon says this. Uh, he's, he's being asked about whether or not baptism is essential, and the person is challenging, isn't it non-essential? Doesn't it not matter? Spurgeon says this. What do you mean by non-essential? I mean that I can be saved without being baptized. Spurgeon. Will you dare to say that wicked sentence over again? <laughs> I mean that I can be saved without being baptized. You mean, that is, you, you selfish, self-interested. You mean creature. So you will do nothing that Christ commands if you can be saved without doing it. You are hardly worth saving at all. A man who always wants to be paid for what he does, whose one idea of religion is that he will do what is essential to his own salvation, only cares to save his own skin, and Christ may go where he likes. Clearly, you are no servant of his. You need to be saved from such a disreputable, miserable state of mind, and may the Lord save you. Can we be saved without being baptized? Ultimately, it is up to God who he will save and who he won't. And so I will not tell you, I will not tell you that you will not be saved if you have neglected Christian baptism. By the same, uh, by the same context, I cannot tell you that you are saved if you are not baptized. I believe that God can and has saved people who aren't baptized. I think there are good arguments to be made for God, God saving people outside of the context of Christian baptism. With that, be, with that being said, why would you not be baptized? Uh, I will one day stand before the Lord. James 3 says that I will stand in judgment and a harsher judgment than most people because I have presumed to teach and preach in this life. I will stand before God one day and he'll, he'll ask for an accounting of what I'm doing. I, at that stage of the game, will say, your word told me to preach baptism, water immersion, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what you have taught me. That is what I taught. That's the only thing I'm going to teach. So, can you be saved without baptism? If you go down that road, friends, you do so on your own. Um, that will be between you and God. I will not only refrain from condoning it or blessing it, but I will offer a warning and just say this. I think there's a rebellious spirit within you if you say, I'm not going to do this. Take it up with the Holy Spirit. See if he convicts you. Let me give you some excuses for not doing it. We'll move to point two and we'll get done with this sermon sometime today. <laughs> excuses for not doing it. Number one, here's your excuse if you're like, I need some out. Here's your excuse. Denominations disagree. There are different versions of Christianity and they disagree on this issue. Well, here's the thing. Uh, every denomination, if you go to scholars of every denomination in the world right now and you ask them, how was baptism practiced in the first and second century? There's no disagreement. Everybody holds that everything was being done the same way for a long time. Indeed, until 1311 AD. 1311 is when sprinkling began. Many of the wrongs, that was the Council of Ravenna, by the way, that approved that. Um, many wrong views do not make it impossible to find a right view. Let me just illustrate this. Imagine you go to your cardiologist. Your cardiologist, you know, they do an echocardiogram and he's like, oh my word, open heart surgery right now. You are about to die. And you look at your cardiologist and say, well, hold up there, doc. There are a lot of different views about the condition of the heart. Romance novels have their views. Some people say laughter is good for the heart. 
Sergeant Pepper has a Lonely Hearts Club band, and the Queen of Hearts, she made some tarts. Oprah tells me to follow my heart, and I once received a candy heart that said, be mine. With such a variety of views concerning the heart, I cannot be expected to settle on one directive. Take your experience in cardiology and get in line, pal. Now you see how ridiculous that would be. Just because there are many views does not mean we cannot establish and understand a correct view. Amen? Here's another excuse. God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Amen. Correct. God does know your heart. Do you? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, one of the best passages you will ever find for conducting your life. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Guys, if the clear teaching of the Bible is to be baptized and you don't do it, isn't that disobedience? No matter what your heart says. Francis Chan was preaching a series back in 2007 after he had discussed Acts 2.38 and gone through this passage with his church, he was inundated with emails, phone calls, messages of all sorts. And here's what they said. They said, do I have to get baptized in order to be saved? Do I have to repent in order to be saved? Can I get the Holy Spirit if I just repent? And the next week, Francis Chan stepped up in front of his congregation and he said, I want to answer these with a question back to you. Why do you ask? He says, they didn't ask. When they heard the gospel message that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins, their one question was, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to be saved? Peter's response was, you need to repent and be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And do you know what they did? They repented. They got baptized and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, crazy response, isn't it? They just did it. More than 3,000 were added to their number that day. Philip, instructed by God, goes for a walk on the desert road. Go walk out into the desert, Philip. And as he's walking along, a unit comes by in a cart. This guy's got tons of money. He's, he's wealthy. He's powerful. And he's reading from the, a scroll of Isaiah. And Philip goes, do you, know, do you know what you're reading? And he's like, how can I know unless somebody explains it to me? So Philip jumps in the cart next to him and explains the gospel to this guy as they're riding along. And as they're riding along, this rich, powerful, wealthy person sees a pool of water in the desert. Do you understand how nasty that would be? All the animals who are in the desert come to drink at that hole. And the, and the water and the sludge just settles in it. And he says, here's water. Why should I not be baptized? That was his response. And so Philip goes down, down into the water and he baptizes him. He just did it. The Philippian jailer comes to faith in the middle of the night. Paul's there in prison. Paul, is, they're, they're singing hymns. The, the, they have an earthquake. The, the cells break open. The stocks fall off. And the jailer comes down. He's ready to kill himself. And Paul goes, don't do it. We're all still here. And Paul preaches the gospel to this guy in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, when it's inconvenient for everyone, they go and are baptized, he and his whole household. They just did it. Here's another objection. It's just so physical. It's just, have you guys, have you ever noticed how everything spiritual seems to have a physical tie? You know why? Because we're physical beings. We are not merely spirits, but we're also embodied. Is there anything else in Scripture that is physical that God has commanded? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, let's just drop a few very quickly. What about circumcision? What about painting the blood of lambs over a doorpost and lentil? Did that matter? 
Did God go, oh, his heart's in the right place? <laughs> Angel of death will pass over. How did God treat with people when they went, you know what, God gave us these, these certain conditions for offering sacrifice in the temple, but I, I'm feeling like I just want to make up my own mixture here. Fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes them. Is God amused when we go, hey, you've given me physical instruction. I'm going to disregard it. Treat honestly with yourself. Why would you be looking for minimal entry requirements? Uh, by the way, if you think that um, it's, baptism is too physical and therefore should be ignored, um, there's a little Plato in your theology. Not Plato. Plato, the philosopher. I love Plato. I, I, I love his writings. Uh, he's one of my favorite philosophers. But he had this value of things that were spiritual and he demeaned things that are physical. But that's not really, that's not from the scriptures so much. Here's one of the challenges that uh, comes up more often than not. Baptism is putting confidence in a work of man, not in a work of God. This is a straw man argument. Nobody holds the belief that dunking people under the water saves them. None of us. I've never heard anybody argue that if we just go force people down underwater, they will be saved. Have you ever heard anybody argue that? Okay, so that's why it's a straw man argument. It's not a real argument. But let me say this. Who says baptism is a work of man? Where'd you get that idea? Baptism is a work of God. Do you know this is one of the things we go through that is passive? That we put ourselves in a position where someone else has to do it to us. Do you realize that's taking place? And again, remember, the baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? It was from who? It was from God. So is the baptism of Jesus. God is doing something that, you think you can just get the Holy Spirit on your own? Do you think you can just forgive all of your own sins? Do you think a, a human being who dunks you underwater can do that? No, we've never argued that that's the case. But do you think God, in the midst of an act of obedience to his will and his desire, can do something incredible spiritually in you in that moment? All right, let me just finish up with a, a, a quick jaunt in favor of baptism. Why should I be baptized? Why should I take baptism seriously on this level? Number one, Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3. Number two, Jesus, was, uh, Jesus performed baptism, John chapter 3, 26 through 28. Did you know Jesus performed baptism? John the Baptist at one stage of the game, he's standing, his disciples come over to him, they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, there's this other guy on the other side of the Jordan, and he's baptizing everybody, and they're all going over to him. And John the Baptist's response is, yes, he must increase, and I must decrease. Jesus was baptizing on the other side of the Jordan. Jesus commanded baptism, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus was baptized, performed baptism, commanded baptism. Number two, the disciples in the early church practiced it and commanded it. Just read the book of Acts. Number three, what have you got to lose? Seriously, imagine I have been wrong all day today. Imagine everything I've said to you, you're just like, oh yeah, I mean, that is in the scripture. But God really just, imagine, God really doesn't care what you do with, regarding baptism. Imagine that's the case. Do you think the Lord God of this universe will be offended that you went, you know what, it seems like your word keeps telling me to do this. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Do you think God would be offended and bothered by that? Or do you think God would go, wow, that's my kid trying to do the right thing? To close up today, guys, here we go. I'm an all seasons baptizer. If you decide you want to follow Jesus Christ, if you want him as Lord of your life and you say, I want to be a disciple, we will baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe this is eminently important. We do this year-round at my house. I've got a pool. 
we got a hot tub for this reason. Um, and, we, and we've had a number of instances where people get dunked. They come out, they say, I want to be a disciple, and we go through the process. We baptize people in wheelchairs and taking them down into the pool that way. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you've never done this, call me. If you say, I want to follow him, decide to do this. Just decide to be obedient in this regard. Can I hear an amen? amen. Let's go to our master in prayer. Our Father in God, we love you. And God, I just want to, I want to pray, Lord, your, your blessing on this congregation. Father, I hope that this was all heard in the right way. Lord, that your spirit speaks to us to, to reaffirm what we already believe, or if, Lord, you need to change our beliefs, I pray that you would do that. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give you ourselves, the whole of ourselves, in our obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen.